On this track, Pat 3, the conclusion of the Sherlock Holmes mystery entitled A Study in Scarlet by Arthur Conan Doyle. This, by the way, was Doyle's first detective novel written in 1887, and the introduction of the characters Dr. Watson and Sherlock Holmes. Little did he know, those two characters would become the most famous detective duo in literature. Not bad for a first effort. Well, now we come to part three of A Study in Scarlet, when Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson will solve the case. I have always found it entertaining to try to figure out who done it before the solution is revealed in the story. I hope you'll give that a try and see if you're successful. By the way, Arthur Conan Doyle, over a 40-year career, wrote four novels and 56 short stories about Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. Doyle himself was a physician as well as a writer, so it's not surprising one of his leading characters is also a physician. Arthur Conan Doyle was born in 1859 and passed away in 1930 at the age of 71. Heirloom Radio now presents Part 3, the conclusion to the story of A Study in Scarlet, with Carlton Hobbs as Sherlock Holmes and Norman Shelley as Dr. Watson. Thank you for the privilege of your time and support for listening to this three-part series. It is much appreciated and the reason why I do this podcast. My name is John Lovering, and now, Part 3 of A Study in Scarlet. However, I must just get this small portmanteau ready. Oh, it's not been used for so long. These buckles are dreadfully difficult. Ah, there you are, my good man. Just give me a hand with this buckle, if you please. Mm. What? What? Don't still. Gentlemen, the murderer of Enoch Greber and Joseph Stangerson. There were always surprises in the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. My name is Watson, Dr. Watson, and this was the first case I was privileged to share with him. I've told you how it began, how it developed, and here I will tell you how Sherlock Holmes found the solution to his study in Scarlet. Just a moment to arrange my notes. Martinique, Tanzania, Dubrovnik, wherever your vacation plans take you this summer, Barclays Bank International has a special going-away present to make your travels completely free of money worries. Barclays Traveler's Checks. Barclays Traveler's Checks are the closest thing yet to an international common currency, accepted at face value throughout the world. And with over 5,000 Barclays offices around the world, all strategically located to serve you, they can easily be replaced at no cost to you should they be misplaced or stolen. Best of all, they're free at Barclays. As part of Barclays' good neighbor policy, you can get Barclays Traveler's Checks without paying a penny extra for commission. And when you think of all the places you plan to stay, the things you plan to do, and the things you plan to buy, that could come to quite a savings. So before you leave the country, come to Barclays for your free of commission Traveler's Checks. Your longest journey can begin with one short step to Barclays Bank, 
208 South LaSalle Street, Chicago, and the world. Inspector Gregson of Scotland Yard had been crowing over his colleague Lestrade. While he, Gregson, had acted so decisively in arresting young Arthur Charpentier for the murder of Enoch Drubber, Lestrade, with the mere duty of questioning Stangerson, the dead man's secretary, had returned to 221B Baker Street with failure written all over his face. But then Holmes and I had been as astonished as Gregson to hear that he had found Stangerson murdered too. Lestrade had brought a box containing two pills which he had found near the body. Exclaiming that at last his case was complete, Holmes wasted no time in feeding one to the poor aging dog which our landlady had asked us that morning to have destroyed. To his dismay, the effect was nil. With his whole case hanging upon the consequences, Holmes proceeded to grind the only remaining pill into some milk and watched anxiously as the dog drank. Poor old chap. It worked. I should have had more faith. Of the two pills in that box, one was of the most deadly poison and the other was entirely harmless. I ought to have known that before ever I saw the box at all. Holmes, if I may say so, any delay in arresting the murderer might give him time to perpetrate some fresh atrocity. There'll be no more murders. You've asked me if I know the name of the murderer. I do. What? The mere knowing of his name is a small thing, however, compared with the power of laying our hands upon him. This I expect very shortly to do. But how? I have good hopes of managing it through my own arrangements, but it's a thing which needs delicate handling. We have a shrewd and desperate man to deal with. At present, I'm ready to promise that the instant I can communicate with you without endangering my own arrangements, I shall do so. Well, I don't know about that. Would you... you... Uh... Sir... Please, sir. What the... Yes, Wiggins? I've got the cab downstairs, sir. Good boy. Lestrade, Gregson. Yes? Why don't you introduce this pattern of handcuffs at Scotland Yard? See how beautifully the spring works? The cabman may as well help me with my boxes. Just ask him to step up, Wiggins. Yes, sir. Holmes, you never said anything about setting out on a journey. Nor I did, Watson. However, I must just get this small portmanteau ready. What is this, Mr. Holmes? Yes, Holmes, I really think you ought to... Oh, not been used for so long. These buckles are dreadfully difficult. Here, let me help you. No, the cabman can do it. Mm? Ah, there you are, my good man. Yes, Governor. Just give me a hand with this buckle, if you please. Mm. All right, sir. What? What's that? Hold it, hold still. Gentlemen, let me introduce you to Mr. Jefferson Hope, the murderer of Enoch Drebber and Joseph Stangerson. Good. We have his cab. It will serve to take him to Scotland Yard. Jefferson Hope, I arrest you in the Queen's name for the murders of Enoch Drebber and Joseph Stangerson. And I must caution you that anything you say will be taken down and may be put in evidence. I've got a good deal to say. You're a doctor, aren't you? Yes, I am. Then put your hand here on my chest. Well, as you wish. 
Well, why, this man has an aortic aneurysm. Yes, that's what they call it. I went to a doctor last week about it, and he told me it is bound to burst before many days have passed. It has been getting worse for years. Uh, Dr. Watson. Yes, Inspector? Do you consider there is immediate danger? Most certainly there is. In that case, it's clearly our duty in the interest of justice to take his statement. Will you write it down, please, Mr. Lestrade? I have cautioned you, and you are at liberty to give your account, which this officer will take down. I understand. I'll sit down with your leave. By all means. Thank you. This aneurysm of mine makes me easily tired, and that tussle we had just now hasn't mended matters. I am on the brink of the grave, and I'm not likely to lie to you, gentlemen. Right. I'm ready. Proceed, then. It doesn't much matter to you why I hated those two men. It's enough that they were guilty of the death of two human beings, a father and a daughter, and that they had therefore forfeited their own lives. That girl was to have married me in America 20 years ago. She was forced into marrying that same drebber and broke her heart over it. I took the marriage ring from her dead finger and I vowed that his dying eyes should rest upon that very ring and that his last thought should be of the crime for which he was punished. I have carried it about with me and followed him and his accomplice over two continents until I caught them. If I die tomorrow, as is likely enough, I die knowing that my work in this world is done. When I got to London, my pocket was about empty, and I found that I must turn my hand to something for my living. Driving and riding are as natural to me as walking. So I applied at a cab owner's office and soon got employment. It was some time before I found out where my two gentlemen were living. They were at a boarding house at Camberwell, over on the other side of the river. I'd grown my beard, and there was no chance of their recognizing me. Go where they would about London, I was always at their heels. At last, one evening, I was driving up and down Torquay Terrace when I saw a cab draw up at their door. Presently, some luggage was brought out, and after a time, Drebber and Stangerson followed it and drove off. I whipped up my horse and kept within sight of them, feeling very ill at ease, for I feared that they were going to shift their quarters. At Euston Station, they got out and I left a boy to hold my horse and followed them onto the platform. I got near enough to hear what they were saying. But I tell you, there isn't another Liverpool train for hours. So who cares? I care. The sooner we're on a train to Liverpool and getting out of here, the happier I'll be. Well, Stangerson, we'll just have to wait, won't we? Now, come to think of it, I have a little business of my own to do now. If you just hang around here someplace, I'll go off and I'll join you later. If you go, I'm going with you. Well, you see, this little matter's kind of delicate. You'd... well, you'd be in the way. Is that so? Well, either I go with you or we both stay here. You can take it or leave it, Rebel. Look here, Stangerson. It's about time you remembered you're nothing more than a paid servant around here. Who the hell do you think you are trying to dictate to me? Uh, I didn't mean it that way. Well, that's how it sounded to me. Now, cut it out once and for all. Okay, then. But look, supposing you're not back in time for the train, it's the last one tonight. Oh, I'll be back here before 11. 
Tell you what, if I'm not, we'll meet up again at Halliday's Hotel. That suits you? I guess it'll have to. The moment for which I had waited so long had come at last. My plans were already formed. It chanced that some days before, a gentleman who had been looking over some empty houses off the Brixton Road had dropped a key of one of them in my carriage. How to get Drebber to that house was the problem. There was a hansom in front of mine, and he hailed it. I followed it for miles, until to my astonishment, we found ourselves back in the terrace where he had boarded. I went on and pulled up my cab a hundred yards or so from the house. He entered it, and his hansom drove away. Well, I waited for a quarter of an hour or more, when suddenly there came a noise like people struggling inside the house. Next moment, the door was flung open and two men appeared. One of them was Drebber, and the other was a young chap whom I had never seen before. You filthy hound! I'll teach you to insult an honest girl! Get your hands off me! If you're not out of this road inside ten seconds, I'll lay this cudgel across you so you won't be able to walk! No! Get on with you! Okay, okay, I'm going. Hey! You! Dare me! Yes, Gardner? Drive me to Halliday's Hotel. When I had him fairly inside my cab, my heart jumped so much with joy that I feared lest at this last moment my aneurysm might go wrong. I was once janitor and sweeper out of a laboratory in the States. One day, a professor was lecturing on some alkaloid which was so powerful that the least grain meant instant death. When they were all gone, I helped myself to a little of it. I was a fairly good dispenser, so I worked this alkaloid into small soluble pills, and each pill I put in a box with a similar pill made without the poison. I determined that when I had my chance, my gentlemen should each have a draw out of one of those boxes while I ate the pill that remained. From that day, I had always my pill boxes about with me, and the time had now come when I was to use them. It was nearer one twelve, and a wild, bleak night blowing hard. My hands were trembling and my temples throbbing with excitement. There was not a soul to be seen. When I looked in at the cab window, I found Reber huddled in a drunken sleep. Come on, there. Come on, wake up. Wake uh, up, I say. Uh, what's, what's the matter? It's time to get out. Uh, oh, all right, cabby. Now, you better follow me, sir. Is this the hotel? Halliday's? Oh, come along there, sir. I'll help you. Mm, it's infernally dark. Say, what kind of a hotel is this? Oh, we'll soon have a light. Let's light this candle. There. Now, Enoch Drebber, who am I? Who? What do you mean? I don't... 
No. No! Yes, you dog! I have hunted you from Salt Lake City to St. Petersburg, and you've always escaped me. But now your wanderings have come to an end. No. No, keep keep away from me. What do you think of poor Lucy Ferrier now? Punishment has been slow in coming, but it has overtaken you at last. Would, would you murder me? Who talks of murdering a mad dog? What mercy had you upon my poor darling when you dragged her from her slaughtered father and bore her away? Wasn't I killed her father? But it was you who broke her innocent heart. Let the high God judge between us. You see this box? What is it? What are they? Uh, just a couple of pills. Choose and eat. There is death in one and life in the other. I shall take what you leave. Let us see if there is justice upon the earth, or if we are ruled by chance. Poison. You're mad. I won't do it. Oh, yes, you will with my knife at your throat. Keep away. I do as I say. Choose and eat. This way, you have a 50-50 chance. If you don't take it, it'll be my knife and no chance for you at all. Very well. I'll eat. Now, I'll take the other. And we shall see. <laughs> it doesn't taste. You've got it. You must... You... Pulses in my temples were beating like sledgehammers, and I believe I would have had a fit of some sort if the blood had not gushed from my nose and relieved me. I remembered a German being found in New York with rash written up above him, and it was argued that the secret societies must have done it. I guessed that what puzzled the New Yorkers would puzzle Londoners, so I dipped my finger in my own blood and printed it on the wall. Then I walked down to my camp. I had driven some distance when I put my hand into the pocket in which I usually kept Lucy's ring and found it was not there. It was the only memento I had of her. Thinking that I might have dropped it when I stooped over Trevor's body, I drove back and leaving my cab on a side street, I went boldly up to the house. I walked right into the arms of a police officer who was coming out. I managed to fool him by pretending to be hopelessly drunk I had to go away without that. So much for Dribber, then. How about Stengerson? Oh, I knew that he was staying at Halliday's Hotel. Early next morning, I took advantage of some ladders which were lying in the lane behind the hotel and so made my way into his room in the gray of the dawn. I woke him up and told him he was to answer for the life he had taken so long before. I gave him the same choice of poisoned pills... He sprang from his bed and flew at my throat. In self-defense, I stabbed him to the heart. I see. You got all that, Mr. Lestrade? Every word. Well, is there anything you'd like to ask, Mr. Holmes? There's only one point on which I should like a little more information. 
Who was your accomplice who came for the ring which I advertised? Oh, I can tell you my own secrets, but I don't get other people into trouble. He had no hand in the deaths of those two men and knows nothing of them. I think we can accept the truth of that, Gregson. Very well, Mr. Holmes. But now, gentlemen, the forms of the law must be complied with. On Thursday, the prisoner will be brought before the magistrates and your attendance will be required. That's understood, Inspector. Until then, I will be responsible for him. Come along, if you please, Mr. Lestrade. We may as well use his own cab. But I'm afraid we can hardly let him drive it. Uh, you'll have to oblige. What? Oh, never mind. At least I can drive a cab. Come along, Hope. Let's be moving. Watson, Gregson and Lestrade will be furious about his death. Well, it was better for the poor devil to die in his cell than on the scaffold. His life was hanging by a thread. I fancy they won't see it that way. Where will their grand advertisement be now? How they must have been looking forward to the trial. <laughs> I must admit it would have been pretty interesting. Never mind. I wouldn't have missed the investigation for anything. There's been no better case within my recollection. Simple as it was... So Simple? Now, let me see if I can make it clearer. Now, this was a case in which you were given the results and had to find everything else for yourself. I approached the house with my mind entirely free from all impressions. I began by examining the roadway, and there, as I've already explained to you, I saw clearly the marks of a cab, which, as I ascertained by inquiry, must have been there during the night. Yes, just a moment. How, how could you know it was a cab and not a private carriage? By the narrow gauge of the wheels. The ordinary London growler is considerably less wide than a gentleman's brewer. Uh -huh. I then walked slowly down the garden path, which happened to be composed of a clay soil, peculiarly suitable for taking impressions. Mm -hmm. There's no branch of detective science which is so important and so much neglected as the art of tracing footsteps. I saw the heavy footmarks of the constables, but I saw also the track of the two men who had first passed through the garden. It was easy to tell that they had been before the others because in places their marks had been entirely obliterated by the others coming upon the top of them. In this way, my second link was formed, which told me that the nocturnal visitors were two in number, one remarkable for his height, as I calculated from the length of his stride, and the other fashionably dressed, to judge from the small and elegant impression left by his boots. <laughs> what next? On entering the house, this last inference was confirmed. My well-booted man lay dead before me. The tall one, then, had done the murder, if murder there was. Having sniffed the dead man's lips, I detected a slightly sour smell, and I came to the conclusion that he'd been poisoned. Mm. I argued from the hatred and fear expressed upon his face that the poison had been forced upon him. And now came the great question as to the reason why. Robbery had not been the object of the murder, for nothing was taken. Political assassins, on the other hand, are only too glad to do their work and to fly. This murder had been done most deliberately, and the perpetrator had left his tracks all over the room. And the inscription on the wall? Was too obviously a blind. No, it must have been a private wrong, and not a political one, which called for such a methodical revenge. I was inclined from the first to suspect that a woman was in some way connected with it. Ah, and finding the wedding ring... That settled the question. However, I proceeded to make a careful examination of the room, which confirmed me in my opinion as to the murderer's height and furnished me with the additional details as to the Trichinopoly cigar. 
I had already come to the conclusion, since there were no signs of a struggle, that the blood which covered the floor had burst from the murderer's nose in his excitement. I could see that the track of blood coincided with the track of his feet. Now, as a medical man, Watson, you will agree that it is seldom that any man breaks out in such a way through emotion unless he's very full-blooded. Yes, quite true. So, I hazarded the opinion that the criminal was a robust and ruddy-faced man. Yes, indeed he was. Quite so. Now, you will remember that I ascertained that when Gregson telegraphed to America, he had not inquired as to any particular point which might appear to be critical. Yes. Well, having left the house, I telegraphed to the head of the police at Cleveland, limiting my inquiry of the circumstances connected with the marriage of Enoch J. Drebber. The answer was conclusive. It told me that Drebber had already applied for the protection of the law against an old rival in love named Jefferson Hope, and that this same Hope was at present in Europe. I knew now that I held the clue to the mystery in my hand, and all that remained was to secure the murderer. <laughs> all that remained? Oh, it wasn't so difficult. I had already determined in my own mind that the man who had walked into the house with Drebber was none other than the man who had driven the cab. The marks in the road showed me that the horse had wandered on in a way which would have been impossible had there been anyone in charge of it. Where then could the driver be unless he were inside the house? And, my dear Watson, supposing one man wished to dog another through London, what better means could he adopt than to turn cab driver? So you came to the conclusion that Jefferson Hope was to be found among the Jarvis of the metropolis. Oh, it's brilliant. It's quite brilliant. Thank you, Watson. But what made you assume that having achieved his object, Jefferson Hope would go on being a cabbie? Why, he would have been foolish not to. Any sudden change on his part might have drawn attention to himself. I therefore organised my street Arab detective corps and sent them systematically to every cab proprietor in London until they ferreted out the man I wanted. Well, they certainly succeeded. But, Holmes, how about the murder of the other man? Um, uh, Stangerson. Ah, that incident was entirely unexpected. Through it, I came into possession of the pills, the existence of which I had already surmised. You see, the whole thing is a chain of logical sequences without a break or flaw. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's remarkable. You should be publicly recognized for this, Holmes. Oh, no. You should publish an account of the case. Oh, no. Well, if you won't, I'll do it for you. I have all the facts in my journal. The public shall know them. You may do what you like, Doctor. <laughs> Hello. Oh. Yes, Mrs. Hudson. The echo's just come, Mr. Holmes. Oh, just throw it down there, Mrs. Hudson. I'll look at it later. No, no, I, I'll have it, please. Oh, uh, very good, sir. Thank you. Uh, shall you be in to lunch, gentlemen? I fancy we shall. Uh, thank you, sir. Thank you, Mrs. Hudson. I say, listen to this, Holmes. The public have lost a sensational treat through the sudden death of the man Hope, who was suspected of the murders of Mr. Enoch Drebber and Mr. Joseph Stangerson. The details of the case will probably never now be known, though we are informed upon good authority that the crimes were the result of an old standing and romantic feud. If the case has no other effect, it at least brings out in the most striking manner the efficiency of our detective police force. Oh. Oh. It is an open <laughs> secret that the credit for this smart capture belongs entirely to the well-known Scotland Yard officials, Messrs. Gregson, Gregson and Lestrade. It is expected that a testimonial of some sort will be presented to these oh. two officers as a fitting recognition of their services. <laughs> well, Holmes, what about that? Didn't I tell you so when we started, Watson? 
That's the result of all our study in Scarlet. To get them a testimonial. <laughs> <laughs> That was the third and last part of A Study in Scarlet. It was the very first of the stories of Sherlock Holmes from the inspired pen of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. My name, my, my real name, is Norman Shelley. My friend Carlton Hobbs played Sherlock Holmes, and I was the good doctor. The script for this BBC production from London was by Michael Hardwick. Need I say I look forward to the pleasure of your company again soon for more of the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. <laughs>